Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about faith and politics. What is the relationship between the two, and what does our Christian faith have to do with the political system? And joining me today to talk about this, we have Brandon Hurlburt, who is a PhD candidate in Old Testament at Durham University. How's it going, Brandon? Going great, John. Thanks for having me. And we have a very special guest. We have Reverend Baroness Maeve Sherlock, who is curate at St. Nick's in Durham, and also a member of the House of Lords. How's it going, Maeve? It's going really well, John. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about your journey? How did you become somebody who is a faithful politician? Well, I suppose that in two halves. Um, I was involved, I got involved in politics when I was a student um, and ended up becoming the president of the National Union of Students in the UK. But then went off and worked for non-profit organizations, working with refugees and with single parents over the years. At one point, I spent a period of time working for Gordon Brown, who was then the Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, the kind of finance, the person in charge of money in Britain. And he asked me to go and work for him and as an advisor. So I did that. And uh, then some, some years later, when he was uh, Prime Minister, he nominated me to go into the House of Lords. So that's how I ended up there. The fate sounds a bit less linear, even less linear. Um, I went, my parents were um, Irish Roman Catholics, and I went to a Catholic school, but I left at 18 and didn't go near a church again until I was middle-aged, firmly middle-aged. Um, when I found myself wanting to go into a church, and uh, I didn't really know any churches, and none of my friends were really Christians, and so I found a church, went into it, they were running an Alpha course, and uh, well, the rest is history. So I came to faith on an Alpha course, and then found myself. Um, Going, so when I went back into politics, then in the House of Lords, I was doing so as a Christian. So it was all very interesting. I suppose my journey as a Christian kind of came to a head when um, in 2016, I started training for ordination. And in 2018, I was ordained in the Church of England. So I'm now a curate in my spare time at St. Nick's Church in the middle of Durham. And also I do stuff, um, a ministry as well in the House of Lords in my spare time. So I'm involved with a group called Christians in Parliament. Um, I baptize babies in the chapel in the House, in the house of Parliament, and I get to be involved um, with, with awesome stuff with other Christians there, and that's brilliant. So the two bits of my life come together in that space, and that's just really great. Yeah, and Maeve, that's, that's, how, that's how we know each other, is that uh, we uh, serve together at St. Nick's uh, in different capacities, but it's been a, a, a joy. A joy to... and a privilege, Brandon. The privilege <laughs> is entirely mine. It's, it's also part of mine, but yeah, that's okay, that's okay. A bit slow off the mark there, mate, if you don't mind me saying so, you know. <laughs> I think for many of our American listeners, especially, we'll be very curious to know, what is this House of Lords and how does the British system even work in the first place? Uh, The UK has a parliamentary democracy. What that means is the country is divided into constituencies, um, 650 of them, and each of them elects one member of parliament. Those members of parliament make up the House of Commons. That's the primary legislative body. Um, The House of Lords is a second chamber which is an appointed chamber. It's made up of people who are made um, peers or or lords or baronesses by the Queen on the recommendation of the Prime Minister. And some of them are are nominated by political parties. Some of them are independent and are put in there by an independent commission. And um, some of them are, for reasons that go back way back into history, some of them are still hereditary peers. Um, In other words, they inherited their titles from their, their forebears. And 26 of them are bishops of the Church of England. It's very different to the Senate and the House, where they're kind of two yeah. competing, well, it's supposed to be complementary, yeah. but two competing houses that yeah. 
in in these days are just you know one is for one party and, and one is for another party and yeah. they kind of battle it out and they just kind of nothing really happens but something somehow it gets worse so whatever that looks like yeah. um yeah. but was no, no, no party has a majority in the house of lords that's one of the great joys of this is usually a party normally one party will have a majority in the house of commons but no party has a majority in the house of lords and so to get your legislation through it actually has to make some sense you have to have some arguments as well as some votes the House of Lords isn't really an upper house in the way that it is for some countries which have uh, two, two houses. It's more like um, one major house, the House of Commons, with a bolt-on revising chamber. So we can't overrule the House of Commons. All we can do is ask them to think again. And then if they, if they do think again, great. If they don't, they can send things back. But in the end, the elected house gets its way. Now, Honestly, this makes literally no sense in theory at all. And yet it works remarkably well in practice. We keep getting people write to us from second chambers around the world saying, the quality of your debate's really high. How do you get this? And we have to say, well, you wouldn't start from here because the House of Lords, the British Constitution is a little bit like Durham. If you invented it now, it would be a nice flat city with a grid. You wouldn't be built on a hill. It wouldn't be built on a peninsula, and it wouldn't mean every bridge you crossed, you turned up somewhere you weren't expecting to get. But it didn't, wasn't created, it evolved, and so did everything in Britain. I can definitely attest to the hilliness of Durham. It has made me uh, much, much more in shape uh, over these years, so I can attest to that. Durham is full of people like me who are not in shape, but we have really good calf muscles. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard this rumor, and I, I don't know if you can confirm it, but are you saying, are, are you suggesting there are, there are more than one, or there are more than two parties? Can you, yes, can you do that? <laughs> there are a number of part, political parties in the UK. Um, there are two big parties primarily in England, uh, Labour and the Conservative Party. There is a Liberal Democrat Party, which has gone from being really quite big to really quite small and back again. In Scotland, the Scottish National Party has, at the moment, a really clear run at it. But also, there are other parties. There's a small Green Party. Um, there are, there's, a, there's a UK Independence Party. There are lots of minority tiny parties as well. Um, so we have had times when there had to be a coalition government. In 2010, no party got a majority in the election. So the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives formed a coalition and, and governed. That's not common in Britain. It's very common in some European countries that have a proportional voting system. It's not so common in the UK, where our system is what's called first past the post. You get most, most votes in your constituency, you win the whole prize because there's only one member of parliament. But yeah, there are plenty of parties. Probably can't address every party, but like if you could map that kind of for our uh, listeners in America, how does that map onto the, you know, Republican, Democrat, you know, spectrum. Well, let me concentrate on, on the parties that cover the whole of the UK, because Scotland really is a different political case. Uh, the two biggest parties, Labour and the Conservative Party, I don't think they do map well onto, onto um, the Democrat-Republican um, divide. If I'm honest, I don't truly understand how um, things map in the US. But the Conservative Party will be on the right and Labour will be on the left. However, both of those parties really are coalitions. The Labour Party is a long-standing coalition between um, a more radical, perhaps even I mean, socialist, but in, in, its, in its gentlest form, a socialist tradition, including radical Christian tradition, and a, a, what would be called probably a social democrat, a sort of more moderate, um, more centrist, um, leftist tradition. Likewise, the Conservative Party has, if you like, a left wing, a kind of traditional, what we call one nation Tories, often reasonably happy with big government, um, want stability. They really are conservative in the traditional meaning of the word, incremental change, nothing too 
radical, don't scare the horses, a bit of noblesse oblige, govern on behalf of everybody, and a, a more a, a more radical right wing, which is sometimes really quite libertarian, um, perhaps very 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 individualist, um, and uh, sometimes quite quite um, disruptive in, in the technical sense. You know, they want to be happy to, to see lots of change, and uh, they're, they're probably quite um, quite nationalist, perhaps. Um, but again, that there are and there's quite so there's quite a spectrum. So in Britain, I think there is elections are won and lost in that middle ground, in those seats that change hands a lot, and that space, of course, can be occupied by by the by part of the right of the Labour Party and the left of the Conservative Party. So. But it's but it, like all politics, it's changed a lot. I mean, there are populist elements coming into our politics as they very much have in yours. And just so we're all on the same page, you know, for the people, you know, roughly who are going to vote for Brexit to leave the European Union, where would they kind of sit on that spectrum? I'm afraid that's really complicated because there are there are plenty of conservatives who wanted to vote Brexit. Um, Perhaps because they had a strong sense of wanting um, an independent um, Britain, and they and they don't like the idea of collective shared uh, pool sovereignty that, that a, 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 a block like the European Union might present. There were people on on the left who wanted Brexit because partly a kind of anti big government, perhaps um, our equivalent of anti beltway politics. People who felt that they had been that they hadn't done well out of the previous system, that felt it was. Uh, they weren't represented, and or, or people who simply have a more localist agenda and, and want to see things focused local. So actually, there have been there are people who felt that the um, the European Union was, if you like, there are really people on the left who felt the EU was a capitalist club, and therefore they wanted freedom to to make their own decisions. So it's 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 and so in the middle ground again, there were people on all for all sides who thought the European Union was 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 wonderful. The, the exceptions, the Liberal Democrats were overwhelmingly overwhelmingly anti Brexit. The other two parties had um, elements on both sides. I think that's really interesting because obviously Brexit was, in an American context, was very, you know, oh, that's interesting. England's having a crisis kind of, sort of. I don't know. We're just kind of over here doing our thing. But it's interesting being, being in England kind of around this same kind of time is that you see, yeah, there, there are some partisan kind of elements to these, uh, to these issues is that, you know, like you said, overwhelmingly, these different parties are voting for, you know, for Brexit for different reasons, or they're voting against Brexit for very different reasons, but they, they don't have, it's not, you know, strictly aligned by the party. I think that's really interesting that maybe something Americans can, can learn that, that we don't have to just think in these narrow partisan kind of frameworks. I think most, especially increasingly, it's the case. I mean, just as, as, as Christians no longer attach themselves to a single denomination for life, people don't attach themselves to any party for life. You know, people's votes have to be won every time you want to go out there and try to persuade them um, to vote for you. And I think the things like integrity in politics and um, and who your priorities, who you who you speak for, who you listen to, these things will all come to matter more than just the label. But the labels are a pretty good. Um, pretty good thing. It would once have been, to be honest, Labour was born out of the trade union movement and it spoke up for for work, ordinary working men and women at a time when they were being treated incredibly badly, had no employment rights, were, were absolutely desperate. And it was born out of that, whereas the Conservatives would traditionally have been the party of, of um, those who owned land, who owned, the, the, this was bosses versus, versus workers, if you like. But of course, it's long since evolved past that. But those would still have elements in it. Labour would still still very tied to the trade unions and would want to stand up for workers' rights. And the Conservatives might be less likely to, to do that. So, so those bits are still there. They just don't, um, they don't say everything anymore. What would you say should be the sort of animating 
force behind the way that a Christian goes and votes in whatever political system they may find themselves in? What, what, what should be invigorating that vote? For me, the goal ought to be human flourishing. And the purpose of the state, I think, is to enable human flourishing. It can't create it or make it happen, but it can certainly make it hard and it can create the conditions that can make it more likely. So for my money, the most important thing for a Christian in voting um, is not themselves. Often when politicians put manifestos together, they, they would list all the things they'll do for you. What will we do for your family? How will you be better off under this government? How will I make you better off? How will I make you be richer? And that's fine. And, and that's, that's okay. But primarily, it seems to me for a Christian, in all the other bits of our life, we don't think what's just good for me. We think we're there to serve our neighbor. We're there to serve others. We don't think we're primarily there to serve ourselves. So why would we think that in politics? So for me, the primary starting point is, is how do I speak up for those who do not have voices? So how do I speak up for the widow and the orphan? How do I do that thing of, of, of using my voice and my vote to speak up and to serve the marginalized and the vulnerable and those whose flourishing is imperiled by the conditions in which they find themselves? So for me, that's the single most important question. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And I lament that kind of self-serving posture that you're kind of talking about, this idea of what's in it for me and yeah, voting in, in one's own best interests. And, you know, in, in a lot of media about sort of voting blocks, that is really kind of like the way it's described. It's like, oh, well, the evangelicals want to do this because it's going to help them or, you know, this constituency wants to do X, Y, or Z. I wonder why is it so hard, especially for for Christians, it's, it seems, uh, to to break out in America in our in our situation. Why is it so hard for us to break out of that? Yeah, what is it that we are struggling to properly integrate into our into our politics? I I don't know. Maybe from your vantage point across the pond, maybe you have some perspective you might want to share about that. I should start by saying that I am looking from a, from a long way away, and I see, therefore, you know, only what I read in the newspaper, see on social media, or watch on the television, or hear from friends. American politics and religion is, is baffling to me, because the issues I suppose I hear being raised most often seem to me to be either issues about uh, churches themselves, or a priority attached to things which, to a European Christian, are just extraordinary. I mean, the death penalty or the right to, to carry guns or, um, or attitudes in some cases to migration which, in language which I find very difficult. Um, and it just, it, it's, it's hard for me to think that Christians have sat down and thought, what do I think is the single most important issue facing my country today and come up with those things when it seems to me that they're surrounded by people who are struggling to eat, to feed their families, to, to have a home, to have health care. Um, and, and so, I mean, if, if, if I were there, um, that, they, they would be much higher up my list. And that's not because I'm, a, I'm some sort of left-wing politician. It's back to the human flourishing point, is that people, um, people have to be able to, to, to survive. And if we want them to raise their eyes up, we need to give them. They need the gospel, but also they need to be able to feed their kids. And they need to get help when they're sick. And these things seem to me to be pretty basic. So speaking of human flourishing, what, what about, you know, maybe... I don't know if you encountered this, but some Christians would say, well, you know, I would like to give more, but because I'm being taxed so much, I, I actually, the government is limiting my ability to serve and love my neighbor. You know, if we kind of scaled back the amount of government regulations and the government kind of intrusion into the charitable sector, we could actually 
uh, as Christians and as the church, we could actually serve and give even more. How would you respond to someone? Because obviously you're in the government and you probably want to increase the way the government is charitable towards uh, your constituents. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? I'm all in favour of charitable giving and philanthropy. I'm particularly strongly in favour of communities helping each other and supporting themselves and building strong community. But I also believe it is the job of those at the top of government to order society in a way which is fair. And if somebody is going to work all week on a minimum wage, they should be able to feed their family um, and to house them in somewhere that's safe. And if they can't do that, then the state needs to step in some way and make that possible. I think on the questions like healthcare, I think there are some basic things that should not be down to charity. And it seems to me that in a civilised society, if, if somebody gets cancer, they should not have to sell everything they own and end up on the street to pay for treatment. Now, I realise that to, 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 to American friends, the National Health Service sounds like some sort of weird Soviet nightmare. And, and, and I realise all kinds of mad stories get told about it. To us, it's just really simple. It's just a very big insurance system. Because there are two ways to do this. We either all pay insurance to a private company and then they skim off some of the profits and then they take code payments off you and then they try not to give you what you need and then eventually you get some help. Or you all pay into it on the grounds that I have no way of knowing whether I'm going to be the person who will get cancer, I'll get hit by a truck, I'll suddenly, my, 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 my child will get sick. I, I don't know that. Therefore, it's a good, sensible thing. We all pay in and then whoever needs the help gets it. And if I want to take out extra health insurance, that's entirely up to me as well. And it's much more efficient. So I suppose I'm all in favour of, sp- of the state doing things like having tax credits that mean that families who do work can nonetheless still earn enough to be able to feed their kids. I want to make sure if somebody is, is disabled or sick, then they get help and they can be looked after. Above and beyond a certain level, I'm absolutely in favour of communities reaching out. And I'm, I love to see churches do that, go out to their community. And there are lots of things that, that the church and indeed the voluntary sector can do much better than the state. So I don't think that means the state has to do everything. But I think it's the state's job to make sure society is ordered in such a way that the basic human flourishing is possible, even if your neighbors decide not to give generously. Yeah, that, that point about the NHS, when I, when I first went over to Scotland to do my PhD, it was uh, at the start of the second term of Obama's tenure. And, you know, that's at the kind of the height of the controversy about Obamacare, as it's, you know, referred to in, in the United States. And there's there was a huge conservative backlash against this kind of sort of move towards any kind of, you know, national health care system that might, you know, smell like the NHS uh, in, in the UK. And all of my American friends who experienced the NHS, we all kind of look at each other like, wait, what's all the fuss about? You know, it, there's something about just being in your bubble and, you know, not knowing what it can be like elsewhere and, uh, or, or what it could be like here from having experienced it somewhere else. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it, was a, it was a very eye-opening experience for me. One of the questions for each of us, I think, is to try to imagine, would we feel the same way about the world, way our world were organized if we happened to be born into very different circumstances? And, it, and, and that's a really good test. Is suppose you've been born really poor. Suppose you've been born disabled. Suppose you know you've been widowed at a young age and left with lots of children and no money. Suppose you know, some disaster had happened. Suppose you've been born in a very poor community where nobody had any money. Would you still think yours was a great system? If you wouldn't, then I do think you have to take a deep breath and think: Is this society fair? And if and if you don't think it is, then how do you think it might be ought to change? 
That's a, that's a really great point. That's a really great point. And you know, in, in 2020, I have really just felt like there's so much about our current system as, as it pertains to healthcare in particular um, in, in the States that has just been exposed in my opinion, like the whole idea of linking healthcare with uh, vocation and your occupation, your job. Um, I mean, what do you do when loads of people lose their jobs and now they don't have healthcare? Um, I don't know that that this is convincing to a number of people on on the right who have kind of dug their heels in, in their position, but uh, I think uh, I think those who maybe were more open minded, perhaps, or didn't really have a strong opinion, I think this has been a very convincing time, you know, in 2020. Um, and something like the British system makes just a ton of sense for the situation that that we're we're in right now. Wait, there's a, one of the bishops in the Bishop of Kensington, Graham Tomlin has written very interestingly about um, apocalypse and the notion of apocalypse as revelation. And that, that times like this, like the pandemic we're all going through and all the things that flow from that, they are moments when they reveal something about the true nature of our society. And sometimes we don't like what we see, but it's an opportunity because suddenly it's the time when all those people who are on zero hours contracts, who suddenly found themselves unemployed, whose savings wouldn't even last to the end of the month, suddenly something about the way society is structured is all burst open and revealed before us, before our eyes, and we can't say we didn't know anymore. The other thing I, I worry about, you see, I think one of the nature pieces of human sin is the tendency to, for me to believe that everything that's good that's happened in my life is because is down to me. Um, you know, that it's actually all because I'm, I'm clever or I work really hard or I've, I've made some great decisions. Now, I might be clever or work hard or make great decisions, but I also know some clever, hardworking people who I used to run a charity working with single mums. Honestly, nobody ever works as hard as seeing a, a woman who'd been abandoned by her husband when she was pregnant with her third child and had to get out there and somehow raise three kids. But I have never seen anyone work as hard as I saw that woman work. She made the most brilliant decision. She counted every single penny. She made it work. She clawed her way back into work. She is, she is smart. She's hardworking. She needed tax state support and benefits to support her because she would not have been able to feed those kids otherwise. And so I think one of the tendencies is for me to remember, you know, that it, one of the things if you ask anyone, how should you do well in society? How do you guarantee to do well? The first thing they would say, choose your parents with care because your parents are still your, are the biggest driver of your health of your likely wealth and of your eventual economic status. And despite all the American dream and all our great dreams of mobility, it's amazing how often that's true if you actually crunch the data. Now, if that remains the case, then something else is going wrong. The final bit for Christians is we have a, 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 a prayer we use when we take up the offering in Anglican churches. And it's, it says this, we say something like, all things come from you and of your own do we give you. And it's a reminder when I think I'm giving money to the church, all the things I have, every breath I take, everything I have has come from God. It's God is holding me in, in, in being, moment by moment, breath by breath. Where do I get off thinking all of this is down to me? It's by God's grace that I can do anything at all. And, and therefore, what I'm doing is sharing that with my neighbor, with my brother. And when I don't do that, and when I'm really tempted not to do that, then there's something in that is, is, is basic sin at work. And I just think we need to test ourselves. I have to do this all the time because we all slip into it. Maybe sorry, I, that was a sermon. I'm sorry about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was great. That was great. I, I, I think I, I think I nearly got saved again. So that was amazing. Um, 
One more, one more minute. I would have been there. No, no, just on that, like, kind of all things uh, come from you and of your own do we give you uh, in the liturgy. It, it really speaks of stewardship. Is that, you know, as Christians, we've been given uh, a task. We have been uh, given by God his own spirit to be a light and a witness in this world. So I, when it comes to politics, when it comes to politics, I think it gets really, really tricky, at least in, a, in an American context, because man, there's this wonderful scene, I think, in The Good Place where it's like, man, life is really complex. You know, you eat chicken sandwich. That means you hate gay people. And it's like, ah, that's such an, that's so annoying that like your minute decisions can have so, so you know, so, so much far reaching consequences. And so I think one thing at least how I grew up, you know, kind of evangelical culture is like, you know, you have to vote your values, which I, I, I agree. And, and then usually, usually how that worked out was your values were Republican values and therefore you have to vote, vote Republican. So like you, do you want a weak military? No, because, and, and then you're like, there's nothing Christian. Uh, I mean, there's actually something eminently Christian about a, a weak military from a, from a biblical standpoint, but you know, in a Republican sense, a weak military is a bad military. Therefore, strong military equals good, godly, and we're good, you know? And so, and so I think one thing- I remember Christian, Jesus saying that, yeah. Yeah, he did. He did say that. I mean, Jesus never said that. We'll just, I'll, I'll stake my reputation on that one. You know, one thing for, for I think, evangelical Christians is, is, you know, we don't have to go into all the details of it, but, you know, with abortion. So if, if you- you know, you have to vote according to your values and your values is, a, a, is life, you know, so pro-life is, is a huge one. And so with the, the question of abortion is that if your candidate that you want to vote for either is in favor of abortions, champions abortions, or even I think just allows abortions, then as a Christian, you know, you know as they say, you're not, you're not supposed to or you're not able to vote for them. That has, I think we see that we've seen that in, in the 2016 election, elections with Trump is like, you know, many evangelicals who are wonderful, amazing people kind of like held their nose and they voted for Trump because they couldn't stomach voting for uh, a politician who supported, enabled and even championed abortion. And, you know, we don't have to, you know, we, we can think a lot, you know, very differently about this. And, I, and I'm happy to think differently about that. But. I wonder just from your perspective across the pond, like how, how, how are these like kind of single issue voters? Like how, what would you want to say to them? I think when anyone comes to make a, a decision about voting for a party, it does matter what the party stance is on issues and it matters what the individual stance is. It really does benefit all of us to try to take the broadest possible view because an election is not a popularity contest. And the end of the election is about deciding who will govern the country. And the way I always try to think is, what will the results be of the way I cast my vote? And if I cast my vote in a particular way, even if I go to bed at night feeling better and feeling I'm better than someone who's like me and agrees with me and I feel my conscience is better, if the consequence of that were that lots of, of people who were very vulnerable would suffer greatly, then I do have to ask, have I made the right decision? Because it is in the end, you're not just voting for someone you know, to say things that you want to hear. You're voting to try to make a decision about the, who will run the country. It's always very difficult because if, if really, in, in, even in the UK, realistically at the last election, there were only two people who were going to be prime minister. So when you vote for one of the parties, the likelihood is one or other of those will end up being the prime minister. And there were, there were plenty of people who didn't really support either of them, who found it difficult because we had a very right-wing a conservative candidate and a very left-wing Labour candidate, and that left a lot of people in the middle who didn't feel they were properly represented. 
And so when the, some of them talked to me, I was then had to think, okay, you need to sit down and think, what will be the result of your casting a vote either way? What do you think the state will do differently in the end that will, make, that will actually make a difference? And to whom will the effect be felt? Now, it's different in British politics because questions like, like abortion, for example, or assisted dying, that euthanasia, they are what we call conscience questions. And so individual politicians are allowed not to vote with their party and if, if they have a conscience issue and they would tend to do that. And so they're, they actually very rarely end up being the, the primary issues in British politics. And we, I, I'm really glad that that's the case because the thing that I find much more complicated is that being in politics means that I have to compromise all the time. And people tell me that sometimes Christians will say to me, but surely it must be wrong to compromise. And yet every single important relationship I've ever had has involved compromise. For anyone out there, you know, marriage is a compromise. Being a membership of a church is a compromise. Being a member of any group of people is a compromise. If I want a party that agrees solely with me, I set up my own party. We call it the May Party. I get to make all the policies. I make all the decisions. And I'll never win. But I'll go to bed being really happy and really glad my vote was cast in the best possible way. If I, I actually want to change things at the end, I, I hope you would, Brandon, you and me, I'd be, I'd be two votes at least. <laughs> I but can't even vote in this else... country. <laughs> <laughs> when the May Party takes power, I will give you a vote specially because I'll be able to decide that because I will be queen for the day, apart from the real queen who's awesome and I wouldn't want to get in the way, Your Majesty, so yeah. Um, but I do th- I think it's really difficult. You somehow have to make choices. And in doing that, you have to, to hold, take a deep breath and look at what's down the line and vote for your neighbour. And so I, I would urge people, please, really, this isn't in the end about you sleeping better at night, although that's really important. It's about the full range of issues and how you use this precious gift. You look at the lines of people in some countries queuing up to vote and, how, and the, when, when they first get the chance to do it. And it's amazing. You look at how, how, how black South Africans fought for years to do it, how women fought for the vote. And here's a precious thing we have. We get to have a say in the running of the country. We need to use it wisely and use it well. Yeah, maybe. I think one question that might be floating in the back of everyone's mind is as just hearing you talk is that, you know, in America, we have a very firm separation between church and state. Now, historically, that was uh, actually to protect uh, the earliest kind of Christian denominations that were fleeing uh, British persecution or, you know, persecution in scare quotes. Uh, We just didn't like the Book of Common Prayer and we didn't like being told to worship according to it. Um, but, you know, so part of it was, you know, separation church and state is, and we don't want the government to be in the church. I think along the lines that is kind of flip-flop back and forth. And, um, but in America, I think most people kind of have this view that the government and the church cannot mix. And if it does, it goes very, very poorly. But it seems like you are this embodiment of the church and state kind of meeting together in a really beautiful way. So like, how, how does that work in kind of your experience? And maybe you want to say more about whether the separation of the church and state or bringing together these two institutions is actually a, a positive thing. It's even more than me. It's the fact there are 26 Anglican bishops who sit in the House of Lords as of right. Uh, what's really interesting is that this is an outworking of the fact that the Church of England is an established church. It is a state church. And this is a product of our history. But actually, it has all kinds of, of, of outworkings, which are nothing to do with politics. It means that every part of, the, of, the, of, the, of England is in a parish. And it means if you live in that parish, you have the right to be married, to be buried, and to be baptized, or you have a chance to be baptized in that church. This is your church. 
and and it and, and it traditionally it has been there for it's seen itself as, as the Church of England is the church for the whole parish, not just for the members of that church, people who chose to go along to it. So it's really the nation's church, and so it's the place where, well, on the, there are important occasions. Of course, it's it's the Archbishop of Canterbury who crowns the monarch, who crowns the, the and it'll be it'll again it'll be the Church of England which which conducts royal marriages where we hold remembrance services. That's so that so in in terms of the. The institu- at an institutional level, it's an incredibly important representation. It's the nation at prayer is how it's traditionally seen. However, the presence in, in the House of Lords is much more interesting because I realise that would be impossible and unimaginable in the US. And yet the irony is actually that, I, to my mind, religion is a much bigger part of politics in America than it ever is in, in, in the UK. Well, frankly, it barely features at all. So bishops will actually speak out, but they would rarely go out and urge people to vote one way or another. I've had bishops write letters to all their people saying things like sometimes use your vote on behalf of the marginalised, use your vote wisely. But they re- it really isn't in the same way. People would rarely demand that they vote in certain ways. But, it, but so institutionally, it's there. One of the interesting questions is some, quite often secularists will demand the instant removal of the bishops from the House of Lords on the grounds that it might offend people of other faiths. Was my experience, often I find other faiths feel that the establishment of the Church of England, what it does is create a space for religion in the public sphere. And, and the Church of England uses that very carefully and wisely to create a space to, so that religion can never be seen to be solely a private matter. I don't believe religion is a solely a private matter, because otherwise you do end up in that space where it's fine, you want to stay home and do that, just don't be seen outside, don't allow it to affect any of your decision making, don't allow it. Well, of course, how can it not? First and foremost, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. That's my single biggest identity. How could it not affect every single thing I do in my whole life? So what the Church of England does is protect that space. And I think that's really powerful. But it doesn't really try to influence politics in that way, although individual bishops and individual priests may do. I'm an oddity. I just happen to be someone who's a life peer and I'm um, a Labour Party peer. And also I am ordained as a priest, but I'm not in there as a priest. I do this and I, I'm, my ministry is, is a personal thing in that space. It's not official. Does that make any sense from an American perspective? Yeah. Not at all. Yeah, no. It's weird. It's weird, but it, it makes sense. It is, we think it's weird. We know it's weird. It is weird. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things is to see, you know, bishops in the House of Lords ask very pointed political uh, questions that also relate to faith and that they're, they're really concerned with like, well, how is this random bill, this, you know, this new measure that's being passed, how is this going to help the refugee? How is this going to help, you know, people in my parish or in my uh, diocese? Because this is going to hurt them. And they, and they realize that. And they actually, there's actually a platform for leaders of uh, Church of England and leaders of faith to kind of address the, you know, quote unquote, secular politicians uh, on a, a very, you know, equal playing field. And I think that's, uh, you know, one of the benefits of actually not having the separation of church and state is that there's a, there's a, a huge platform um, to, you know, it, it, the Church of England and the bishops in the House of Lords almost function like the nation's conscience, um, is that they're able to um, point out things that they see as unjust. You know, in, in the best case scenario, they're, they're able to be there point out things uh, that are unjust or unfair, where people wouldn't necessarily uh, understand that or, or know their constituents well enough to identify these issues. But because the church, uh, the bishops are able to have kind of, you know, their ear to the ground, they can see how these political decisions might uh, adversely affect uh, people within their churches and in their communities. 
the very first debate I listened to when I joined the House of Lords was on some aspect, I can't remember, of criminal justice. And it was fascinating because as the debate went on, we had two of the speakers had been formerly home secretaries, in other words, minister, senior ministers in charge of the whole um, criminal justice system. We had people who were retired judges. There were active lawyers, very senior lawyers. There was somebody who had been a trade unionist who had represented prison officers. There were people who were patrons of charities that worked with victims of crime and did it with rehabilitating offenders. And there was a bishop speaking about prison chaplaincy and what the prison chaplains saw close up and their experience of it. And it struck me that the House of Lords becomes what I think the theologian Luke Bretherton described as being where the House of Commons is a series of geographical constituencies. The House of Lords offers a series of overlapping vocational perspectives. So what you get is a much richer picture. You get lots of different perspectives, lots of different kinds of expertise and experience. And that just gives you a much more rounded view than you see if you see things just linearly, either through a political or party perspective or through a geographical perspective. The bishops are unusual because they have both. They're the only ones in the Lords that do represent a geographical area. So they bring a real range of both sets of experiences. But actually, it, it, it means that you get a really rich debate in the House of Lords. So our job of improving legislation is often that when we get things through from the House of Commons, we drill down to the detail. We keep saying, what will this mean in practice? What will this happen how effect on, the, on these people? How will this happen? And I think the church is what Luke Brotherton described as being the original third space between the oikos and the polis. You know, it, was, it, was, it was neither the formal public space or the private space. The early church was this third space where none of the normal rules applied, where men and women mixed slave and free, you know, Jew and Greek, where this was genuinely a space. And that maybe for the modern day church to be able to position ourselves in that space, where we do minister both ways, we minister to the individual, but also we look out to the needs of a whole range of people and think, okay, and that's one of the things that the church can and should do, I think, in the public space, is to examine things for the perspective of, of others and those, again, not just those for whom they, they minister narrowly, but in its broadest sense. And maybe that's what it's best the Church of England can do. With that comes the question of unity and diversity and how do we, you know, I think 2020 is, it's a terrible year, if we could just be honest. It's awful. I, it is. It is. It's, it's, I think if we're not careful, it will just get worse. Uh, and especially with in America, I think, I mean, literally right now, they, like California is on fire. The West Coast is just all on fire and it's awful. But I think it, it, it will get worse if we're not thinking carefully and think, I think as Christians, thinking theologically about these issues. And I think one of the important issues that I think is so fundamentally lacking in Amer the American church and in politics, uh, American politics as well, is, is, is unity, is the question of how can we disagree well and how can we be unified if we are, are Christians? And so maybe just kind of as we're landing the plane here, what do you want to say to uh, Amer the American church, the church in America? What do you want to say to them about how to be uni unified while disagreeing? I wouldn't presume to preach to the American church, but let me tell you what I found in the Church of England. When I first went into a church, I was middle-aged and I really didn't know anything about it. And I began to realize that people in the Church of England had different views. So I assumed that that meant that they didn't really think, take these things very seriously, they didn't have these views very strongly. And eventually it dawned on me that they did think, believe them very strongly, they just believed different things. And then slowly I realized that the Church of England was held together, not by a doctrinal basis, but by the creeds um, of, the, um, of the church um, and by the articles of the Church of England. And they had basically made a decision as to what are the absolute non-negotiable things which we are bound together in common. And these are the fundamentals of the Christian faith based on the life, death 
resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and his lordship. I mean, so we knew what holds us together. And the rest of us, we are between us navigating, slowly trying to work it out. And so something about being held together in that space which maybe grew out of our own civil war, having to hold together in a space, I mean, people who are very low church and much more high church from a range of views, some much more Protestant, some almost Catholic, but held, forced to hold together in that space, to hold on to the things that bind, bind us together and try to navigate our way slowly together to the future and to walk together. As someone from the outside, from politics, I found that incredibly impressive because I know how hard it is to do. And so I just really found it a life-giving, affirming way of saying, because what it said to the outside world is those things that bind you together, they must be really, really, really important because you're willing to overlook the other differences. So this stuff, so let me look some more at this stuff that is so important, it holds you together with people you disagree with because I wouldn't be in a party with people I disagree with with this much stuff, but you're bound together by that and that's really powerful. On diversity, in Parliament, I'm in a prayer triplet with uh, two other peers, one a Conservative, the other a Liberal Democrat, and we meet and pray together most weeks and we disagree on lots of things. But you know what? When I sit on the benches and I look over there and I'm really angry with the government and I disagree with what they're doing and I can see my, my prayer partner and I have to think, OK, here is a woman. I know that she loves God. I know she's a faithful Bible believing Christian and she has prayerfully reached a different view from me on this. And I have to do two things. One is acknowledge just occasionally I may be wrong, but also to acknowledge that it's OK to have reached different views and just to try to find ways of navigating that forward together. Now, obviously, I, I really basically believe I'm right and she's wrong. And I regularly pray she'll come. You know, I've said to you, Brian, I regularly pray she'll come to see things the way that God and I see them. But, you know, in the meantime, until, until, until the escadron comes and it's, a, it's all revealed, um, I do think it's there's something. And what a witness that is to people outside the church. You know, what a witness to be able to, to hold on to that together, to navigate it and to be open to the possibility that we are all seeing through a glass darkly. It's our job to keep trying to navigate, keep trying to understand, keep working our way through but we haven't we're going to get it wrong and that's okay yeah i really i really appreciate that example of thinking about the role of prayer in in providing that unity even with those who hold different differing political views um, uh, as yourself and i think man there are a lot of christians in my life that i i view uh, politics differently from and that's not a posture that i have to think about how can we persist in prayer together and these sorts of things and i, I find that actually to be a really beautiful challenge and i appreciate you sharing that example and really appreciate you being here with us today really loved hearing your perspectives and, and your experiences this has been wonderful so but thanks so much for joining us today Maeve. it's been a real pleasure thank you both If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from The Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on The Two Cities Podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.